so I'd like to invite Mark up here. Mark Sheldrake is no stranger to our church. He's the National Director of Precept Ministries International in Canada. And um, not only that, he's a great guy. So we are very thankful for him, but thankful especially because he really does bring forth um, the Word. He's teaching others to be in the Word. It's not about just this knowledge dump. It's about it sinking into our hearts and teaching us how to do that. So I'd like to just pray for Mark before he starts. We thank you, Lord, for um, Mark especially and for what he has uh, done through giving his life to you and how you have used his life to help all of us to be more deeply in your word. We thank you so much for your word, which is to us this wonderful treasure. And it's um, inexhaustible, the things that you have said. There's just so much beauty in your word. And we just thank you for how it reflects your nature, your character, teaches us, um, draws us closer to yourself, and gives us um, really joy inexpressible. So we thank you for Mark and for his uh, diligence and willingness and his heart for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Do you all have a Bible? I'm not American, but sometimes I get caught saying y'all. Is that okay in Alberta to say y'all? All right. If you have a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, my understanding is uh, that you've been working through uh, the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And the reason is uh, simply because of the leadership principles that come out of Nehemiah are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I just spent this week here at this church and on Wednesday when I started uh, the sessions that I was teaching, we walked through Nehemiah uh, for the first seven chapters or so to really show leadership principles uh, and how we can apply them uh, to our lives. So uh, this part of Nehemiah chapter 5 that we're going to look at, um, there are leadership principles in there. But there's also, this is one of the most difficult sections of the book of Nehemiah. The reason is because there's a whole lot of, not a lot of good stuff happening here. So if you think about Nehemiah, uh, you've come through uh, Nehemiah being in reproach, you know, hearing of, of Jerusalem and the walls being down. Uh, you've also seen how he had to go before King Artaxerxes and, and ask for permission to leave and go build the wall. And then he went and he did his homework and he checked out the work that he needed to do around the wall. Then he got all of the people living in the land to start building the wall. And then where you left off was all of the people were building with one hand with weapons in another hand. And so everybody at this point in this time of Israel, they have one focus and their one focus is the wall. And they've got one phenomenal leader who continues to remind them of the vision that he had of a completed wall. And so they're going to do everything they possibly can to get to the wall. But the problem is something happens in chapter 5. Now look at uh, verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 5. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. If any of you are reading from others... Uh, bear with. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against 
their Jewish brothers. Verse 2 says, For there were those who said, We are sons, and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain, that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, and our children like the chil- their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. There is a lot happening in these first five verses. But you have to understand the context here. We've sort of had up until this point in Nehemiah, it's really been all rosy, hasn't it? You know, like Nehemiah went to the king and the king's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. You know, Nehemiah also said, I need all this stuff to build the wall. Yep, you got it. I'll give you protection. I'll give you the title of governor. Everything you need, you've got it. Go build the wall. They start running into some enemies outside enemies in chapter four and but you know nehemiah is like the lord is with us this is good you know and then he gets them all building the problem is that in this time in history of israel the economy is awful the economy is in such a difficult position. They're facing opposition from enemies. They're facing oppositions within, but they're also facing something else, something that's been in place since way back when Ezra started to build the temple, and that is a famine. And so because there's a famine in the land, there's not a whole lot of rain to produce crops. There's not a whole lot. It's not like Israel today. All right, Israel today can go through a, a dry time, but for some reason in their science and their you know, expertise, they've been able to have banana plantations and mango uh, trees out in the middle of the desert, and you can see them growing in the hottest parts of the summer, no problem. This is a serious problem in this time that they are in the midst of a famine. There's economic conditions that are making it very tough. And because of that, because of the outside, because of the inside enemies, and because of the famine, this is why we now have this great outcry. And the outcry is coming now directly to Nehemiah. The people are coming to him, and they are starting to say the following things. Now look, there's four different people groups here, so if you like writing things down, you can see these four different people groups very easily. The first people group are the ones that we find in verse 2. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. The first group of people that we're looking at here are people that don't own land, but they are people that are hungry. They don't have any money for food. And so at this point, they are crying out because they need food to eat. Just like you and I, we need that to eat. So they're in a position where they can't get that. The second group of people are in verse 3. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain 
because of the famine. So they too, struggling with eating, but what they're doing is they are people who own land, but nothing's growing on the land because of the famine. So they are mortgaging their properties to get money to buy food from other people. And so they are too in a position where they're lacking the essential resources needed to live. Now the third group of people comes in verse 4. There were also those who have said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So now there are people who are landowners, but they weren't having issues with food, but now they are having issues paying the king his tax. And so I don't know about you, but maybe this is sounding like today. You know, people struggling to pay the taxes to the government, you know. And the problem is, in this time, in this day and age, under the Persian rule, you see, the Persian king, Artaxerxes, what he would get, now you ready? This was all for him. All the tax that would come in would all go to line his pockets and make him really rich. So none of this money went into community programs, None of it went into funding food banks. None of it went into building community centers for people to have fun in. It all went to line his pockets and make him a very rich man. The other thing about Artaxerxes and his rule was that he would also be willing to accept food, all right, crop, as a part of that tax. So he could take 50% money and 50% crop from people. So now are you seeing the problem here? That they're starting to run into all of these problems because they've got to pay the king his tax. They've got to feed themselves, but they're in the midst of a famine and there's very difficult situations. So that's a few of the people groups. Now look at the last people group. This one, this one's the problem. Verse 5. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Chapter 4, you had outside enemies who wanted the stopping of the building of the wall. Chapter 5, you have enemies from within. This flesh of my flesh that they're talking about here, their flesh is like my flesh. This is Jewish people, Jewish uh, part of you know the greater Jews, and they are, what are they doing? This is what they're doing. They're taking children and they're taking wives as slay, slaves in light of payment for what they are owed. So they were borrowing money and they couldn't pay their money back. And so what they were doing was putting people into slavery to meet their dues. This is very serious. This is Jews getting rich off of other Jews. But the one thing that we should kind of bring to this point over here is how does that all apply to us? Because we don't really take children and wives into slavery in this day and age, do we? 
Not really. But this is one thing that we can be aware of. That in the time that was happening here is the same thing that can happen to us is the very fact that there are enemies without the church, opposition to the gospel, and there can be enemies who are within the church. And it allows us to be very aware that there are people who are after their own agenda within the church, and we need to be very alert to that. In the book of Jude, it says certain persons crept in unnoticed. That means that the opposition came into the church as people were living out their lives and they didn't recognize it. And so why did they do it? Why were they doing it in this book? It's the same reason they were doing it in the book of Jude. They were doing it for sordid gain. They were doing it for their own benefit. So now we know what the problem is of chapter 5. The problem is not the outside. It's what's happening within the walls. And so you might ask yourself, as I asked myself before I get to verse 6, I asked myself this, why didn't Nehemiah know this was happening until there was an outcry? So far, we've looked at him and we've seen how good of a leader he is. But why didn't he notice that this was happening to the individuals? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. One, I believe he didn't recognize that it was going on because he was so mission-focused. And the fact was that he was so focused on making sure that one thing happened, and that one thing was the building of the wall. Think about where we're at in this point in the time of the building of the wall. There's husbands, wives, children, all working in family units on different parts of the wall. They've got them all working. So there are wives and children who are maybe not going back and taking care of the farm. They're not taking care of the crop and their land. They're not taking care of the production of the food. We know that the men were not doing that because all the men were on the wall. The men were on the wall with weapons in one hand, with the load they were carrying in the other hand, according to chapter 4. And so Nehemiah was so focused on getting that wall done that he had really tunnel vision, that he wasn't looking around at the situation around him because he was so focused on making sure that got done. Here's the other reason I think that Nehemiah didn't know. And this is the hard one that maybe each and every one of us have experienced at some time or another. But when we begin to do the will of God, when we begin to walk forward in the mission that he has given us, that sin begins to be revealed because God is at work. And so even in our own lives, as we begin to walk in a path of sanctification closer and closer to God, as that is our goal, as Paul said it was his goal in Philippians, is Christ likeness as that you pursue christ with all of your heart you begin to study the bible and read the bible and understand the bible you start to realize where in your life you have missed the mark that's one thing that happens in our lives in this situation as nehemiah was pursuing the mission of god which was to rebuild the wall that enemies began to bubble up and show their true selves 
Look at with me in Nehemiah chapter uh, 3, and I want to make sure I uh, find this right um, verse because I didn't highlight it, but it's just come to my mind, and I might just have to send you back into your homework. But what I believe it's Nehemiah chapter 3, but what we found out in Nehemiah chapter 3 was that the nobles and the uh, leaders, okay, so the, these people that we're talking about here in these verses in chapter 5, they never ever supported the building work. You can go back and you can see that they never supported the building of the wall. They were all about themselves from the very beginning, and now we see it all played out. That's in Nehemiah chapter 3. So as the building project began, problems began to reveal. And this is the reality for us, that as we begin to build for the kingdom of God, and as we pursue His will, enemies will rise up. And they will rise up from in. Why? Because you move with God's will. But those who are not of God's will stay where they are. And you'll find out who they are. It'll become very clear those who continue to live in sin and not pursue uh, God with all of their heart. Now, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. These are some of my uh, favorite verses because uh, I try to think about what this would look like. First and foremost, he says, uh, then, okay, so he's got the report, uh, then I was angry. Remember when he got the report previous about what was happening in Jerusalem? Remember? He said uh, he heard about what was going on and he was in, uh, he learned that Jerusalem was in reproach and he uh, wept and he mourned and he fasted. Do you see that happening now? Uh-uh, that's not happening now. No, no more weeping and fasting for what's going on. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. Now, what was he angry about? I'll tell you what he was angry about. He was angry that these people in verse 5 were taking advantage of their own family. Not as individual family units, but Jew taking advantage of Jew. This is a righteous anger that comes out from him because Nehemiah knows the word of God. He knows what God's word says regarding this very situation. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. And I want you to see for yourself what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 23, 19, 20. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. Now look at Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22, 
25. Here's what he says in verse 25. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And shall it come about when he cries out to me, I will hear him for I am gracious. The reality is that when we come down to verses in 6 and 7, we know that the anger comes because Nehemiah knows his God. Nehemiah knows God's word. He knows the law and he knows what they're doing is absolutely wrong. Now, look how he begins to deal with this. And you need to think about what's happening in verse 7 for a moment. He says, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against him. Usury there is interest. Don't collect interest on your loans. It's very interesting. While I was here this week, Precept is in the middle of purchasing a uh, building we've purchased a new building and like november 1st we're taking possession of this new building and as i was out for dinner the other night i got a text message from a fellow believer and they said hey we we're thinking we might want to carry a mortgage for you and i'm thinking to myself uh do you know what i'm studying this week (laughs) you know should i bring this to him and say Thank you for the the loan and I hope you don't charge me interest or should I go through the bank and pay interest? I mean, what is happening here? So when I have a meeting this week, we'll study Nehemiah chapter (laughs) 5. No, I'm just kidding. I, I won't go there. Anyway, so, but what you've got here is you've got Nehemiah and I want you to understand this. What does it look like when somebody consults themselves? Have you ever thought about that? Is that an in-corner conversation where you have a discussion between yourself and yourself? Hey, Nehemiah, I'm thinking this is wrong. What should we do with it? Well, we should probably deal with it this way. Are you okay? I'm not sure if I should do that. This is a conversation that's going back and forth. No, this is what this means that he consulted with myself. It's that... The word consulted with himself in a good understanding is that it is my heart consulted with me. And so what he did was he took what he knew in his head and what he knew in his heart and he reconciled them together and then he called everybody together. Now think about that for a moment. How often do you, when you see something that is wrong, when you see someone that is living in sin, that you allow your heart and your head to consult with one another and then take action? Because that is completely contrary to what the world teaches us. Because the world teaches us tolerance. That we should just turn a blind eye to what's happening. 
The reality is that it's very difficult for a believer to call out a non-believer's sin and keep them accountable for that. But what we're looking at here is Jew to Jew. This could be also equated to believer to believer. Now Matthew, in Jesus in, in the book of Matthew, he, he gave us a way. You can cross-reference this and write it down. I'm not going to go through it because of time. But Matthew 18, he tells us how to deal with the problem of calling out someone who is sin in sin. But I also believe that it's found in the book of Nehemiah. And so he consulted with himself, and then he held a great assembly against them. Now, you have to picture this for a moment, because what you've got here is you don't have a one-on-one conversation over someone who has sinned. He has brought everybody together in one place to discuss this problem. That would be like this, for example. If there was a group of people struggling with one type of sin... We would get in a room like this, Nehemiah would be standing here, and he would be calling out each and every one of you. That's what Nehemiah is doing with all these people. He brings them all together, but he does this in a way that we can really learn from in how to deal with sin when we see it. And so there are six ways in which Nehemiah deals with this sin. And the first one is, notice, I want you to be careful here, it is not, you're going to hell if you don't repent. That's not number one. Let's look at what they are. Start in verse 7 again, okay? Here, here they come. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers, and you are exacting usury each from his brother. So the first thing that Nehemiah does is he appeals to the family mentality. He appeals to the love that they should have for one another because this is Jew to Jew. He is talking about and using the word brother. We are together here. This is how we're supposed to live If I have a love enough for you, brother, then you will want to see correction. So the same can be said when we are dealing with individuals that are dealing through sin. Your first response should be to go in love. It's not to go with an attitude of of judgment, but it is to go with love so that that individual will be open to hearing you. Because if you go with judgment, that individual will be closed off. But the idea of love is the very fact that as you go in love, it's your life that I care for to see for correction. Why? Because God wants to see you come to repentance. So we must go to the believer in love. The second is this, that you must base it on the word of God. And so how does Nehemiah do that? Again, in verse 7, he goes and he contends to them with the you are exacting usury. 
If you were a Jewish person, you knew the law. And you knew what I've already looked at in the cross-references, that you cannot charge interest to your brother. You cannot do that. That's what God tells you, don't do it. He actually says if you don't do it, and that if you let things go, you will be blessed. And so he uses the word of God, and he holds it high. And the reality is the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, and I'm not telling anything new here, it is the guide to our life, and it tells us how to live and do right and wrong with each other and before God. If you've not studied the Bible, you will also know that the Bible is very clear on how we should deal with money. And so we can look to the scriptures and have a good understanding of how to deal with money. So it's better for us to point to the word of God and show right and wrong in the word of God versus trying to come up with our own reasons for what is right and what is wrong. Look at verse 8. This is the third way in which he comes before them to remind them of their uh, sin. Verse 8 says, I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now uh, would you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. What Nehemiah does here is he reminds them of God's redemptive purpose. He reminds them of what God set up in the very beginning, which was the year of Jubilee. That after, at the seventh year, all slaves were to be let go. That all debts were to be let go. And so this was a couple of things. It was very interesting to read this this week that some scholars believe that this was one way to keep econom the economy level within Israel because it didn't let the rich get too rich and it didn't let the poor get too poor because after the seven years they were able to get out of from what they were under. And so he reminds them of uh, the redemptive purpose. How often for ourselves do we need to be reminded of the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ? That when we go to somebody and we want to correct them and pull them out of their sin, we need to remind them of this Savior who died on the cross. And when he was resurrected from the dead, he defeated his sin. And therefore, you too can repent and be forgiven of your sin. Why so often do we automatically say your sin is going to lead you to hell? We could remind them of the very fact that Jesus died for you. He will forgive you of your sin just like he forgave me, a sinner. So I once was where you are, but now I'm here walking the path of righteousness, but I'm not there yet, as what Paul said in Philippians. I'm not quite there yet, but I'll get there. Here's the next way in which he brings them out. Verse 9, again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and of our enemies? You know what he says here? He says, 
What will our enemies think if they see us behaving this way? What? This is a call to be different. It's a call to be different than the world. And so he calls them out right there. And he says, you need to live and walk in the fear of our God because we're different. And so therefore, uh, we need to be reminding those, remember where this is happening. It's happening within the walls, Jew to Jew. The same can be said within the walls of the church. We need to be remembering that we're called to live in reverence of our God and be different in the world, but not of the world. And therefore, we shouldn't be doing the same things that the world is doing. And he reminds them of that. Look what he says in verse 10. And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, the oil, and the oil that you are exacting from them. This is the final way in which, or the fifth way, sorry, is example. Using Nehemiah's own example of not charging a usury and lending out money. How vital it is for our example, and we'll come back to that one before we wrap up. And then I want you to look at uh, the uh, next appeal to their hearts to bring transformation. Verse 12, he said, Then uh, they said, We will give it back. We require nothing from them. We'll do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to his promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus May God shake out every man from his house and from his possession who does not fulfill the promise. Even thus he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. Do you know what he did here? He reminded them as they said, Hey, we're going to follow this. We're going to take an oath and we're not going to charge and we're going to give everything back. You know, we're sorry we did it. But he says, if you don't keep the promise, let me remind you of one thing. If you break that oath, God will judge you. His wrath will come upon you for breaking that oath because you didn't make it with me. You made it with God. See where he went at the very end? He needed to remind them of the judgment that will come if they do not change. And that is the reality that for each and every one of us, if we were ones to continue to live in sin and celebrate sin and worship sin, that we too have a judgment that is coming for us. And this is why it is so important for us that we not only take this oath that we have given to give our lives over to our Lord and Savior, but that we keep it. Because there is a judgment that will come for those who do not keep the oath.
So here Nehemiah brings them to the point of where they make this oath, but he reminds them, judgment, my friends, is coming. Look at verse 14. We'll read down to verse 19 and we'll wrap this up. Moreover, from the day I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I, not, did, I not do, I did not do so because I feared the Lord. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my enemies and servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was an ox, and six choice sheep, also birds, were prepared for me. Once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance, yet all of this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people." Remember me, O oh my God, for goodwill according to all that I have done for this people. I want to wrap this part up and I want to give you a quote. D.L. Moody, this is what he said regarding these page uh, verses 14 and 19. He said, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they only shine. Let me read that for you again so you can allow that to sink in. A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They only shine. This is what Nehemiah is doing in these final verses. This is not a wipe the dust off, let me brag about who I am. This is Nehemiah showing his example. He's showing his servant attitude in the very fact that over his entire year as governor, one, he never ate from the tax money that came in. He always had provided for himself to the very point that if you didn't see it in here, you need to go back and look at it again because of time. He actually fed 150 people at his table all the time. He was always giving for uh, the people. The other thing that he did well here is this, is that he wasn't a leader that wasn't with his people. He actually got his hands dirty on the wall. He wasn't an administrator who sat back on his own little governor throne. He got his hands dirty on the work of the wall. And this is why it was so easy for him to come alongside and call this out. But the reality is that our lives are the shining light for Jesus Christ in this world. And so by our example, we should be leading and we should be not living a life of sin or trying to call out sin that we are already living out. Write this cross-reference down and you can go back and look at it. It's Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 13. Philippians 2, 1 to 13. And Paul tells us how to live in unity as believers. Do nothingness out of selfishness 
or empty conceit. We're called to live together. We're called to watch out for one another. We're called to serve one another. But most importantly, folks, what I want you to understand out of this is we are called to call out sin in each other. Why? Because we love each other. Why? Because we all want to pursue Christ-likeness. Why? Because we all want to spend eternity in heaven. So what is your view on your relationships with each other? Do you have the leadership quality of courage to call out sin when you see it? Or are you more open to turning a blind eye and letting it go? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are so thankful for what your word teaches. For Father, it's straight from your word that you show us how to deal with sin within the camp. That Father, you call us to do it in love. That you call us to do it based on the word of God. That you call us to lead by example. So Father, you know the hearts of each and every person in this room. You know their sphere of impact, the people around them that watch their moves, watch their actions, listen to the words they speak. Father, may they be words that edify and build you up. May we be a light in a very dark place. May we shine very bright and be distinct from the world. May we deal with each other in a much different way than this world deals with each other. And Father, if there are situations where we run into other believers living in sin, give us the courage to go before them, to keep them accountable, to bring them back in line to what your word says. In your name we pray. Amen.